Greetings, welcome everyone. My name is Sakib and I'm your host on this episode on the secrets of divine love in which I speak to author and writer Helwa. Uh, the book is a bestseller on Amazon and Helwa is uh, somebody who is very passionate, poetic and takes a love-based approach to spirituality inspiring hundreds of thousands of readers. Her popular blog Quran Quotes Daily uh, was established as a means of helping others overcome personal and spiritual struggle on their journey of experiencing divine love. With over 15 years of experience writing and speaking on Islam and spiritual development, Helwa draws from her personal experiences and traditional sources to help her readers access divine love in everyday life. I've described her book as a summary of Al-Ghazali's Ahiya Ulumuddin, a modern-day summary if you like, and the reason I've chosen those words is because she goes into the various pillars or facets of Islam and it, through her heart-based approach is able to show both the outer and inner dimensions, interdependent dimensions, shall I add, um, of uh, those aspects of religion and at the same time is able to ground that in practical advice for the reader and seeker. So it's absolutely amazing talking to her. Uh, before we start the podcast, just a few updates. Firstly, thank you to the Patreon subscribers who are supporting this work. Uh, and to find out more information uh, or to become a patron, please visit uh, the com. Also, do join us on social media. We are on Instagram, Twitter and have a Facebook group which you can access for more information. Right, without further ado, here's a podcast. Halwa, welcome to the Hikma Project podcast. An absolute pleasure and honor to have you today with us. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you so much for having me. Mm. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullah. I've been really looking forward to speaking to you after having listened to the Audible book. Um, in which you read out the whole book and it was just uh, absolutely amazing to go through each chapter and discover these gems of wisdom and insight. When I finished the book, I thought this is one of the best summaries, if not the best, on Islam. And almost like a, you know, the Ehiya Ulumuddin in the modern time, if you like. You know, this is Ghazali's works in the modern time in that you've gone in and given a really lovely balance between the inner and outer. Alhamdulillah, thank you so much for your, your kind words. I, um, you know, Imam Ghazali is someone I definitely look up to and his, his works have been a great inspiration to me and the, the way that I've walked in, in this tradition. So um, I feel completely humbled by uh, the comparison, knowing that his work is... Um, is something to aspire and learn from. So based on your book, I've got a few questions. The first being that you, th this transformation that takes place. So you mentioned how you were see seeking and searching um, and your heart wasn't content until um, you meet this lady who's deeply, deeply absorbed in prayer. And that has a transformative effect on you. And then you meet Sidi, Sidi Jamal, I believe, a uh, Palestinian 
master, Sufi master, who was also the custodian of the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Could you tell us more about your encounter with him, how you ended up meeting him and how you knew he was somebody to be taken as a guide and, and what impact he had on your journey? Well, I would say in, um, you know, in the time I spent in Turkey um, and this sort of almost like a chance meeting with this everyday Muslim woman who was just praying. Um, I think the way that I conceptualize that in the book is that she's the first time that I saw someone not just praying, but become a prayer and offer herself up to Allah. And, and I think in, in reality, she's following in the examples of the prophets, peace be upon them, um, that they've laid out for us and living a life being a prayer, being an answer to prayers. Um, and in reflection of that, uh, it's something that people always are very curious about in reading the book. I realized that it's, it's, um, it felt so like, like, like a miracle to me, like this chance moment to me, but that in reality, Allah is always blessing us with these seemingly normal moments that are infused with barakah or infused with something mysterious. And we sometimes we catch on and, you know, many people are walking past this moment, but somehow it strikes me and it changes the course of my life. And yet I, we look at that and we're saying, oh, how lucky I am to have experienced that. Or, But in reality, it's, it's surrounding every single one of us in every single moment. And, and when we're aware of it, we say, wow, how incredible, but in reality, it's always around us. And so the, the limitation is in our awareness, not in Allah's giving, in a sense. And so in reflection of that, it's like, wow, like I feel it's a simultaneously feeling chosen in a moment, and then at the same time feeling humbled. Um, I think a rabbi once said this really well. Um, he said that uh, you should have, everybody should have two pieces of paper one in each pocket and one says the world was created for me and then the other paper says i am nothing but dust and like mm. there's this sort of balancing act between these two realities you know i was created as a representative vicegerent of Allah. i came from dust black slimy mud you know like this kind of um and so in this experience of wanting something deeper and suddenly being awake, awoken to, there's so much more to this life than the outward, um, you know, I guess they would say the bazaar of life, the, the getting and the giving, and the pleasure and the pain, you know, and this duality. And I think coming across um, just meeting City in this, like, again, seemingly chance opportunity of he was teaching a sort of class and I just like found it somehow on the internet and you just listen to him and found out that he has the same quality that this woman had. Mm. Um, you know, she was unnamed, which ironically enough, you know, you have great scholars like Ibn Arabi and he, he, he has teachers that are women, but they're unnamed. Like there's this hidden veil, um, which, which obviously has its, um, positives and its negatives but nonetheless here's this woman that she was sort of veiled it was like a moment in time and then here comes city very similar quality uh, of being a prayer and offering his entire 
existence to Allah. And there's so many people like that. It just happens he's the one that was put on my path. And to learn from some of the books that he's written and the teachings that he has about the essence of the Islamic tradition from a person who follows everything cross T's and dotted I's and after crossing the T's and dotting the I's seeps deeper into the deeper dimensions, but not in terms of avoiding those things and saying, well, I'm beyond that. No, it's very much, I take the density, the outer, then I go into the inner and then into the beyond. And I think that's what was so beautiful in its holistic nature. Because a lot of times, you know, when people hear the word spirituality and they consider themselves religious, they see that as a bypass of all the rules. But to see somebody who's seep deeply into the spirituality in terms of like the essence of something and yet abides by every rule is like it creates this holistic feeling that feels like in alignment with the hadith the quran the traditions of the prophet peace be upon him his companions his family members and it's like it feels real and in in, in real life i think for me wow so for those listeners who may not have seen or glimpsed this dimension of wilaya or spirituality or um, that, 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 that you saw in, in this lady and in Sidi, how, how would you describe what it means to be a prayer in comparison to, say, simply somebody who's just very pious and religious in in um, a conventional, conditional sort of sense? That's a wonderful question. It's actually something that I've been sitting with deeply in my own life. Um, I think we start our days with prayer, dua, supplication, salah, connection. And it's about, we say, this is how I, I speak to God. I converse to God. Um, and I've seen that in reality, if we really think about it, we are praying in Salat with words that Allah himself said. So although we say this is our connection, this is how we connect to our Lord, we are actually using God's own words to talk to God. And so when you really sit with that, you realize that it, prayer is really about listening. It's more about listening to what Allah is saying than it is about speaking in a sense. Of course, it's both. And of course, we're called to ask of our Lord. But in that essence, that like that five times a day, that 50 times a day reduced to five times a day, that every moment of your life you should be in prayer is really about listening. And so for me, I feel like walking into life as a prayer is about deeply listening listening, watching, listening, and answering other people's prayers. To, to offer yourself up as a prayer is to, I feel like, do everything in your power in every moment to answer others, other people's prayers. It could be an animal. It could be a plant, a, a thirsty plant that the rain just didn't touch. And maybe you're just meant to water it, but because you're listening, you notice that. And you're reminded that you are a caretaker of this world. 
that you've been sent here to take care of this world. And so when you walk out as a, as a prayer, you're answering prayers. So how do you interact with the bee that buzzes around your food or the fly or the cat underneath the table? How do you interact? You know, people have stigmas around dogs, but how do you interact with a dog who comes and, you know, licks you and you may feel, oh man, that you may be of the opinion that that requires a certain shower or a certain sort of ritual. But how do you interact with that? Like, do you see that moment as an opportunity to witness God? And so a lot of times people stop, oh, you're saying God is, you're saying animals, dog, or like God is this animal? No, but if in every moment Allah says in the Quran from the east to the west, like, there is my face. Did you witness? Did you notice it? So walking mm-hmm. in as a prayer is saying, I'm listening. God, what are you asking? What are you saying? I'm listening in the, in the face of my friend or in the face of my father or a stranger. I'm listening. And I think to me, walking out as a prayer and offering yourself up to Allah is saying, I am listening. You speak to me. Because a lot of times in prayer, we, we're, trying, we're asking God, which is absolutely okay. And it's interesting to turn that and say, God, I'm listening to you. You lead me. So that's what mm. I would say. The other thing that came out is in the immense sort of insights that are interwoven in your book, um, in everyday language, in everyday stories, but beneath it actually the, the sort of wisdom stories have profound depth and inshallah hopefully we'll, we'll explore some in this podcast the language that we're referring to is dualistic when we say i worship allah or i'm listening to allah yet at the same time there's a subtle nuanced non-dualistic reality as you said these are allah's words and now we're we're actually quite very receptive. Could you say something about that? The the the, the non-dualistic unity reality, one reality, yet the language being dualistic. I love that question. I would I, because I love it because I think when you turn when you think in terms of the word the divine quality asami, you think of Allah the all hearing. So the question is, what is it like to hear, to listen? So you're speaking, I'm listening. When you speak, your words travel through air waves and it hits my ear and it translates and I hear. And I speak and you listen. But what does it look like to listen if there's no separation? Because now if there's no separation, where is what space are my, are my words or your words traveling? Who's speaking? Who's listening? If there's no separation. And you see this a lot with the kind of the Persian mystical Islamic poets. You, you know, they, they end, Rumi is famous for ending a lot of his poems saying the Farsi word, khamush, silence. Like, in a sense, he, he's in his first poem, actually, he, in the Mathnavi, he goes and he's like, I'm whispering. Because intimacy, when I whisper, what happens between me and you, we get close enough and close to you. 
But when you hit silence, then there's, there's no more space for words to travel through. Right. And so that's why, again, he says the language of, of God is silence. All else is poor translation, <laughs> poor translation, meaning duality and interpretation and all the things that come from human perception based on misperceptions of past experiences since childhood that perpetuates into the present and creates splits. But in that silence, in that chamush, in that space, you know, where the prophet, peace be upon him, is getting revelation and then it stops. And he's like, whoa, did, did I do something wrong? Did something happen? And God's like, you're not forsaken. I see you, I hear you. And, and it teaches us this deep teaching that the space between words is part of revelation, that there's something very intimate in that silence that gives language its meaning. And for me, that's where duality like slips into melding into unity. And so when I'm saying, let's walk out the next dimension of how do you walk out as a prayer, listening is how do you walk out into life realizing that the bee, the voice that's speaking to you is not different than you. That's not that different than you. That you're seeing 8 billion mirrors of yourself. And so that person in front of you that you're inclined to judge, what would it be like if you actually knew that they were just another fracture of you? How would you interact with that wounded person, the, the homeless person, the or at rather the houseless person, the person who's poor, the person who's, who has everything that you wanted to attain. How do you interact with these versions of yourself? Because now if there's no separation, so that would be the next step. And I actually urge anybody who may listen to this and feel inspired enough to actually step outside your neighborhood, walking wherever you may be and reminding yourself of, of the possible reality that everything you see is really a reflection of something within you. And that Allah put, has paved your path down this sidewalk or this trail before you were ever born. Uh, there's this like intentional paving of you to experience this in this moment right now. And what is it saying to you? How is he speaking to you? Um, yeah. Well. So, still on the introduction, you then mention how you have this calling and you're sort of inspired to write a book, but then you have some doubts and this voice comes and you reassures you that actually this is not a question of you being worthy or perfect to do this work just be an instrument and the book you know this message or whatever needs to come through will take care of itself how was that like has that happened to you before is that happening now what what could you say a bit more about that experience yes i'm actually happy you brought this up because i would say of everything in the book this particular portion sometimes is misinterpreted um you know people say are you saying that like God spoke to you? And I always laugh because I think God speaks to all of us in every moment. None, no one is a prophet except, you know, the last prophet was prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. And there were prophets be before, before him, peace be upon them all. 
I'm not prophets. I'm not a messenger. I'm just a person who's calling to God for help. And I believe that Allah answers us. And the way that I received that was, it's, it was essentially very clear it was, you're supported, step forward, step forward and do your best. That's all anybody can ask of you. And in the end, I would really writing the book, I would imagine myself in certain intersections of what to talk about or how to share it. And I would, I would say, okay, you know, if right now God took my life and I returned to him, like, could I stand for what I'm writing? Like, could I be like, Allah, like, this is my intention. So I would test myself with that to be like, if everything is stripped away, could I stand before Allah and say, this is what I could have been wrong. I could be wrong, but this is what I what my intention was. And so I, after a point of feeling guided and hearing, it, it felt like really just, it's like intuition more than anything, like hearing this intuition that says, yeah, you, you're right. You can't do it on your own. You can't do it on your own. So instead of fighting that with everything you have and wasting your energy there, put your energy in me. And it's, it's really when you read the Quran, you realize that's, that's the message of the revelation is that like revelation is revealed truth. And the truth that I'm revealing to you is you can't do it without me. It's like, that's what I feel like Allah is saying, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I actually accepted that, it felt like the most empowering thing. It almost feels like at first you're like, Ooh, that feels so, I'm so needy. And I, it, it would, wow, like I'm really incapable. But actually it felt like the door of need and poverty is the least crowded <laughs> of mm. the gates of Allah. Because nobody wants to come that way. Nobody wants to say, I'm so needy. And for me, I, I think I was so lucky because I, um, I didn't know that much. And I still don't know. I was lucky because I c- couldn't say, yes, I read all these books on Islam, but I couldn't say that I was a professor. I couldn't say that I was an imam. I couldn't say that I taught all these classes. I just was a Muslim who just loved the Islamic tradition. And I was, that's all I have. It's still all I have. So I came like, mm. I don't have anything. I really, I, outwardly, I got nothing to offer. And I still say that. I was like, it's funny because it's really a, an anonymous author wrote this book and so I had but then what happened is I came to Allah with all of my lack of ability and he put in my path people that were so capable professors and imams and some really well known I don't even know how they came into my life Hmm. teachers people who are unnamed in terms of acknowledgement because they didn't want to be acknowledged and so they came and helped this and made sure that it was in the right framework and that it was in alignment with Islamic principles and and that's what happens when you go to a law empty yeah no I'm like I got nothing I need if this is gonna happen I need your help like I felt this calling and in the book I say it's like this prayer of a girl or a boy that I felt like it's like it rung in my ears I'm like what is this and you know what now I realize it could very much have been me at that age making a prayer to future me you know it could because time and space is not linear in terms of 
the divine realm. It is for us because we're stuck in this sort of arrow of time. But for Allah, time, past, present, future is, it doesn't have constraints. He says, be, be, be. He said, be and it is and be it wasn't. It's like all the same. It's simultaneous in the, in the divine realm in a way we can't even articulate, really. Mm. And so like this prayer, it, it rings. It's like, I just trust it. And it called me to something totally beyond myself. And to this day, I can sit back and say, I don't know who wrote that. I know some people read that and they say, are you saying God wrote this through you? And I'm saying that anything we do is by Allah. Allah didn't just say be and leave you. He sustains you every moment. Can I pick up a pen without him? Can I articulate a thought without him? Look, if I trip bad on the pavement and hit my head, I can't do anything. <laughs> my, if my brain doesn't work, like Allah literally allows my feet to walk. And if he chooses any moment to stop drumming this drum that I call my heart, I stop living. So how can we say we do anything on our own? Do we really do anything on our own? It's, mm. it's in the adab of politeness to attribute the beautiful things that we create to Allah and the things that we fall short on, we attribute it to our ego. Right? But even the movements, even in our disobedience, like Allah has to give us permission to move in those directions. We can't do anything without him. He's not responsible for, or we don't blame him for our actions are sinful and yet he even and, and it's helped me a lot to people in situations of injustice or being on the side of being wrong being like Allah still chooses to to put his breath into this person and give them life but despite the things they may have done to hurt me or others that there is something still sacred and holy in the fact that they're living and I see in the prison system I go to visit it's like here people people say you're out because you did this awful thing. And yet here they are alive, living, trying to seek God, trying to have the redemption moment. And we write them off mm. as outside of God's mercy. When Allah says my mercy encompasses everything, I forgive all sins. You know, there's this all encompassing, powerful entity that's always surrounding us. And I think we lose sight of that and so in terms of this particular portion of the book it's like of course I, how could you not attribute the things you do that are hopefully good to god it's inspiration you know i think in terms of inspiration like i think i say this in the book but it's in spirit to be in your ruh and you move that way that to me is inspired not just creative ideas um and for that, I, I, it's, it would be impossible to attribute to myself because you know what? I know my lack of ability. I know that my one plus one should have never been 200. It should have been mm. two. But other people say, oh, wow, like that's cool. You had 100 plus. I'm like, no, it was, it was like zero plus zero and it became something. And I don't know how. So I can see the process. I can see who I am. I can see my incapability and see that it doesn't add up and know that there's this invisible digit there of baraka blessing generosity that's really i can't count as the quran says 
And I think that verse is so interesting. You can't count the blessing of God. You can't even count one blessing. Like we translate, I can't count the blessings of Allah, but you can't even count one blessing. You can't even see how that one thing reaches roots and how it inspires fruits. You can't even see that far into one thing. Now imagine blessing on blessing and blessing compiled into this incredible, enormous, infinite figure. We could never wrap our minds around it. I know I went beyond your question, but yeah. No, it's fascinating. Throughout your book, there's constant reference to the Quran. And often, especially with the younger generation, uh, or those who are inquisitive, or those who have a spiritual yearning, they, and I put myself in this sort of category uh, when I was a lot younger, um, still seeking spiritual truths and deeper meaning, is that, you know, reading classical commentaries and literal and even moral sort of interpretations of the verses didn't really give me the spiritual depth that I was looking for. And one of my teachers, um, he wasn't born Muslim, but he had sort of studied various spiritual traditions, Taoism and Advaita and what have you, and well acquainted with the non-dualistic traditions. Finally, when he came to Islam and the spiritual path of Sufism, said this is what I was looking for and and in the Quran it has everything and I, I thought at the time which Quran are you reading because I don't see all this you know I hadn't read Ibn Arabi at the time and I was quite new to Rumi um, but I, I, I couldn't access that depth of spiritual wisdom uh, that was in it and often people when they cite the Quran it's either legalistic prescriptions or political stroke moral narratives how were you able to firstly build this deep relationship with the quran and how were you able to resonate with it and uncover some of the deeper truths and spiritual wisdoms inside it hmm. that is a another wonderful question i actually would say i wasn't able to uh, I had a very similar relationship to the Quran, as you mentioned. Um, I was born Muslim, so I was used to hearing it, you know, used to go to the mosque and going to Mecca. Like we, I was raised with Islam, but I didn't have a, my own relationship with the book. Um, and so I start with saying, yeah, I, I actually didn't know how to. It was actually in like a prayer asking Allah, can you open this book to me? Like, can you show me something in it that I'm not seeing? Can you unveil a fragrance? Can you awaken the subtlety of my senses? Can you help me see beyond ink on a page? Can you show me something beneath the surface of these outer waves? Can you unveil something to me? And it's making that prayer and saying, I am open to something different because I see the remarkable. I mean, even when you see, if you think in terms of Rumi or Ibn Arabi, I mean, this is the book that inspired them. So mm. everything that people 
seeing those works, you know, the Farsi, they, in terms of uh, Rumi, they say, you know, this is the Quran interpreted in the language of Farsi. <laughs> it's, it's so infused, you could not remove it. In English translations, they, there is that erasure of Islamic principles and that tradition, but in its original, uh, as the scholars would speak to, is you cannot erase. It's just so embedded in it. So how could you be amazed by these great works and then the very text that they based their ideas on is somehow lackluster? You know, like so then it made me realize that it's deeply veiled that the book is living and that it watches you. It reads you as you read it and you have to come to it willing to receive from it, not to strengthen an argument, not to validate a previous notion. You know, a lot of times we come and we're like, oh, I really resonate with that. I'm like, oh, I really resonate with the Quran. Like, oh, you mean it just justifies your previously held ideas? To come to it, oh, I resonate with that one, but I don't resonate with this. Which means I am using my preferences or my intellect as the for, as the criterion for what's right and what isn't, or what is true and what isn't. And the Quran's like, no, 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 I'm the criterion. Using me and challenge your beliefs. So it really, it really confronts the ego in such a direct and beautiful way. But if we're not ready for that confrontation, we're just frustrated with it. And so we're, so much of our energy, so much of my energy was spent fighting the things that I didn't understand instead of saying, Allah, help me understand. And I think for me that the language is so significant because that distinction and question asking, I'll give you two things that changed, really changed my relationship with, with Islam. The first was saying, this doesn't make sense. I don't get it. And you have to convince me. Changing that to Allah, help me understand the wisdom behind mm. what you shared in this particular verse or this context, that shift. And the next thing was asking, instead of saying, why Allah would you do that? Why Allah, why any, why Allah fill in the blank, transforming it to, or changing it to Allah, help me understand and learn the lesson you're trying to teach me in X, Y, Z. Those two, it sounds insignificant, but those two shifts in languages changed everything for me in my relationship with my religion because it took me from a position of putting God on trial, Allah, to receiving what God is sharing. And that context difference off the bat changed everything. And then really that first thing also is ask God to open his book to you. Ask him because actually I couldn't even understand if the symbol was in front of me, I couldn't see it. I need his light. And in the Quran, it says, you know, uh, this book was sent with a light and that light, some would interpret as the prophet, peace be upon him. So really taking the context of his life story with the Quran and it's what it's offering, but that prayer to Allah is everything. Because the book is read with the eyes of your heart. And I need light for that. I say in the book, light to the eyes is sight. Light inside is insight. I need that light inside. So I can see and I can read, but I need my heart to see and read because it will be different. 
and lucky for me, I find that Allah surrounded me with people who, who had the eyes inside. And so they kind of almost guided me. Like I, I was blind. I had a, you know, like a walking stick. I was like, I needed, I needed of Braille, that spiritual Braille. And, and I still consider myself a baby and being able to see. Um, but I see that being around people who have that sight and can articulate to you and unveil these deep wisdoms that it's like, um, it, I think Rumi says it's like, it splashes joy on your heart, you know? Um, I think for me it was, was big and continues to be so great um, to be around people who can really see. Lovely. One of my favorite chapters in the book is the chapter on fasting. And somebody had sent this to me in Ramadan. And I, again, I was blown away by some of the insights. Uh, so I'll read out a few of them uh, if, with your permission. Sure. Fasting is not about losing body weight. It's about losing the weight of your sins and learning to detach from the ego that weighs you down. Wow. So is that, did you have that insight? I mean, where did that come from? Hmm. Yeah. So, um, you know, in Ramadan, um, there's always this conversation of, I want to lose weight this Ramadan or I always gain so much weight in Ramadan or it's just over here. This and I'm from California. So, uh, there's this, uh, yeah, diet and, what we eat and things like that. It's like really a forefront um, in this state and it could be in other places too. So you kind of hear that a lot. And, and in reflecting on it, I was like, you know, like what is like, really, what are we trying to lose in Ramadan? Cause it's not about weight. You know, so that's just a thing of the body. Obviously we're called to be healthy, but called to be healthy to like use these bodies in service of Allah. Um, I was like, you know, it's, but I, it really does feel it's like, it's an opportunity to let go of the weight of patterns and habits that are not serving us. I was like, yeah, mm -hmm. what do you like to approach Ramadan like really in this spiritually dietary way? Like how can I lose the weight of my habits? Like I want um, the inches around my spiritual body to be less, you know, like, and what would it feel like to like transform that language and so for me, that kind of came just from circumstance and surrounding. Um, and then, of course, you end up reading, and then I'm reading, and it's like that same notion sort of validated, even across time and cultures. Maybe that wasn't as important. It, it seemed to be a relationship that um, had been made, not even in Islamic traditions, but, you know, fasting has been a thing in Jewish tradition and historically in Christian tradition, you see that with Jesus. And so it's, um, yeah, I don't think it's a new idea. I think in my context, it felt new only to see that it's, everything's been said under the sun. <laughs> and then going on, uh, I love this quote where you say, the spiritual path is not one where we find our way to God. 
but rather one where we, we remove everything that prevents us from seeing that we're already in the divine court. And, you know, that's such an important principle of poverty, spiritual poverty, of fakr. You know, it's cultivating this emptiness. And often the temptation can be to fill that emptiness with um, virtuous actions and to adorn yourself, if you like, with good works and things that um, would make God happy or beloved. But ultimately, there's, as you said, there's this way of complete poverty and neediness and emptiness and having all of that taken from you almost is that right am i thinking along the right lines here yeah i would say also in addition to that um that there's this way in which we feel like are we're tasked with finding god hmm. like i'm on a search to find god and i always think because i you know sunny California we always have sunglasses and I can't tell you how many times I put my sunglasses like <laughs> you know my shirt and I'm just like looking for it I've even looked for my sunglasses with my sunglasses on mm. and I'm like I'm never gonna find those sunglasses because I didn't lose them mm. and so like searching for your tail in a sense obviously not to compare a lot to a tail or sunglasses but the the concept of looking for something you never lost is frustrating. In other words, instead of the journey saying, Allah says, look, I'm closer to you than your jugular vein. You know, Ibn Atala, he says it beautifully. He's like, you know, you're veiled by Allah because of your proximity to him. You can't, the eyes hmm. can't see themselves. So like, they can look, but granted, you're going to say, okay, there's a mirror and you can see. But I mean, like in terms of out in space where there's nothing to reflect, like how are the eyes going to see themselves? Like, so it's really, it's almost like this beautiful thing to meditate on, to contemplate, to sit with, to pray and be present with is that God is not just this transcendent reality and sometimes we only see it in this tenzi this like whoa over there there's nothing like him but he also says like i'm closer to you than you drug either right that there's this teshbi this closeness this and the tawhid the unity is the two of these together you can't just have one it's incomplete that's why when people are i'm just spiritual they only hold on to the he's closer to my jugular vein so then you start to hear things like god is in me God is me, God is you, which Islamically we don't stand by. <laughs> or people say, oh, God is so far away. He's beyond anything. You, it's, so, it's only over there. And then it feels distant and people are like, huh, intimacy. Like I'm losing that because like, I can't like, it's this combination, this very interesting contrast, but it's not separate from, there's no duality with the divine it almost like breaks your mind and it's paradoxical elements. And, but we have to like, 
it's the, this, the two sort of, but there's just one. And it's this, for poets, it's beautiful. <laughs> like poetry mm. loves this. Literalism, intellectualism, philosophy, sometimes scientific inquiry is very frustrated by that. Mm. And, but that is what it is. It's, it's meant to frustrate, to break the mind because the mind understands things through association, through separation, through duality. And so we need, and I think in the book it says like, the, like pure light you can't see, pure darkness you can't see. We need a mix of these things so we can have an experience. And so in terms of this, the, the, the spiritual journey is to understand and unveil the closeness of the divine presence to you is a reminder that it's the ego that's really in the way. What is making you reach? What is making you walk? Because sometimes people do good because they, they feel, they're, hmm, I'm such a good person. Like, uh, I'm the bigger person. And so that really fuels the ego. Mm. Sometimes they call that in spiritual context, like a light veil. Is it really just, it's like a nice thing, but it, it's fueling the ego. There's some traditions in the second station of the ego, they'd say, it's when you do good things in secret, but you really want someone to find out and give you double credit for being the type of person that did good and then hit it. So it's like, like how tricky can our ego be? And so it gets in the way sometimes when we're like, we're going to, we're setting out on a journey and we're going to, and we, and I, and I'm going to, I'm going to find God and I'm going to purify myself and I'm going to pray so much. I'm going to fast, but it's so much I and your eyes in the way of the divine. Better to say, God, I need your help. Allah, I need your help. You just go straight to him hmm. and like let him guide you and feel that feeling we all avoid, that needy, that poverty, that what you're talking about, that fakir, that I'm so desperately in need of God every moment. Oh, that doesn't feel good. But it's empty enough for you to receive. Inshallah. Inshallah. Um the next part in this beautiful chapter on fasting uh, is the story of Mansur, a mystic by the name of Mansur, who was fasting the month of Ramadan, was walking to the mosque when he passed a group of lepers who were eating leftovers from the trash. One of them invited the well-known mystic over to eat lunch with him. The mystic said, are you sure? I don't want to be an inconvenience to you. The man assured him that he would be honoured to eat with such a famous scholar. Mansur accepted the offer and sat down with the old leper on the floor as he prepared the meal. The leper turned to his guest and said sadly, Are you not afraid of us? We often invite the imams we see going to the mosque to break bread with us but none of them ever do. The sweet mystic smiled softly at the man and said, this is because they are most 
likely fasting? The leper replied, but aren't you a religious man? Aren't you God-fearing? Why then are you not fasting extra fasts before Ramadan? The mystic smiled and said, yes, surely I love God. And today I have the good pleasure to eat with you. The leper smiled and together they enjoyed a few bites of food. When the call to prayer rang, Mansur got up, lovingly embraced the leper in gratitude and headed to the mosque for afternoon prayers. After the sun set, Mansur prayed, Thank you, Allah, for the opportunity to serve you. May you accept my fast today. A few scholars overheard Mansur's prayer and turned to him and said, Mansur, we saw you eating with the lepers today. You are a hypocrite and a liar for trying to come across as more righteous than you are. Mansur turned to them humbly and said, I may have broken my fast, but I did not break a heart. You tell me, which Allah will forgive more easily, a fast we have broken out of love or a heart? We have broken out of self-righteousness. That's an amazing story. Because if you think about this mystic Mansur, he's so empty of himself that he's putting somebody else's needs of just being the leper who wants some company beyond his self-righteous needs of what is apparently the good. and But it's also a very high station. It reminds me of the Malamatiya Ibn Arabi talks about, uh, who are so hidden, they have uh, nullified their very identity of being religious or spiritual in any shape or form. Um, whereas often it can be that that becomes the identity. I am very religious, I am very spiritual, or I have, you know, a fill in the blank. And I think you do say it somewhere in your book where some people make a idol out of religion. Yeah, that that's again, that story really st stuck out in terms of its depth and the metaphysical depth and what it's teaching is. Could you say something about that and where you got it from and, and why you decided to include it? Uh, I think it's in the section only for the sake of Allah. Hmm. I, um, yeah, that's definitely, it's one of my favorite stories in the whole book. And um, talking to you now, I, it's not a surprise that it's something that, uh, that you chose as well. Um, mostly because it articulates the, the softness of someone who's on the spiritual path, on the Islamic path, and what it means to be a true walker on this path. And I think for me, it stood out because, you know, a lot of times when we're in Ramadan, it's an opportunity to scale up on our practices and possibly change up certain habits and it's when those who are religious really step in deeper and in, into doing more of what they've already been doing. And, and um, being part of the sort of younger generation in a sense, 
seeing people, you know, Muslims who are, in, they call them Ramadan Muslims, you know, there's this like sort of judgmental take on somebody who is reminded to turn to Allah in this month and people oh, judge them. Yeah, you haven't, done, you haven't been to the mosque all year, but now you're here, you know, and there's this sort of judgmental tone for someone who's turning to Allah and, and like, doesn't make space for them because of some judgment. And here you have Mansour and he's like, man, if, if, if my practices don't make me more gentle, then I'm practicing for what? Who am I? If my turning towards Allah doesn't make me more soft, doesn't make me a mirror for his qualities of love, mercy, generosity, peace, kindness, then it's clearly just amplifying my ego. And I'm, I'm afraid of that. And so I'm not going to be in, in a manner in, in my worship of Allah in a way that is harsh and hardens me. And remember, this isn't in Ramadan. He's doing like free fasts. This is not obligatory. Mm. He's, he's not not praying to be with the leper. You know, like he's not... Mm letting go of his obligations to Allah, but he's understanding that there's room for flexibility because he's seeing, you know, why am I fasting? Like, what's the purpose if it's not to make me a better representative of the divine, if, if it's not to make me more like the prophet, peace be upon him. If, if my practices don't get me closer to the one who was sent as a mercy to all worlds, I really have to sit with those practices and how I'm practicing them. doesn't mean I let go of them, but it does mean I need to like restructure my relationship. If I'm reading the Quran all day long and someone says one thing I don't like and I jump all over them, there's something not, there's, there is a lid on my heart and no matter how much rain of love pours it and it's not landing inside, there is a lid. I need to remove that lid. So the world confronts us with the places where we could be more soft, more gentle. And that's why this path, we're not in Ramadan all year long. That's why the prophet, peace be upon him, went to the mountaintop, but came down. That's why the prophets didn't live separate from, from people. They lived amongst them because they understand that here is the reflections. Here is the articulations and the Reminders of our blind spots, of the places we could be better, we could witness more, we can. And I like the Prophet Moses was sent, you know, al Khidr. Like he was amongst the people. Like this is a reflection of his inner state of opportunities for growth within him. And so, in the same way, in Ramadan, if it doesn't make us more gentle and more merciful, if reading the Quran doesn't make us more kind and more generous, if walking, if doing dhikr doesn't make us honor people more, then we have to sincerely confront ourselves as to what our intention is with that. And it's confronting. And that's why we ask Allah for help every step of the way. The Prophet, peace be upon him, he was consistently seeking guidance. And here's the one who Allah's you know, the angel is speaking to and he's still like turning consistently. 
And so it's a really, it's a, it's a beautiful reminder for us to really think in terms of not just our practices, but how we are with the world, how we are with the creation. It reflects in a sense how we are with the creator. Wow. And the creation is not the creator, but this world was created by law. So it's beloved to him. We don't know. We don't know whose heart, like who's beloved to Allah. We don't know who goes home and asks for forgiveness. Mm. No, and so we have to assume that everybody is beloved to Allah because in a sense, he created them. Now, the prophet, peace be upon him, stands up for the funeral of the Jewish man and people of his time are like, why are you doing that? He's like, this is what God created. It's like, how could you not... <laughs> In a sense, you know, the, this, these separations and these judgments, it comes from the ego's desire to be and to say, I am better. Which is not a voice reading the Quran you ever want to have because you know who had that voice. And that was the shaitan. Mm. So when we're saying I'm better, and we're, oh, I practice more than that person. Or, oh, like, look how, like, we, we got, we caught you. You know, like, you're reflecting a voice you never want to have. I think may Allah protect us from that. I mean, the other chapter that really struck me, I mean, the whole book, in the whole, every chapter literally has gems. And if anyone's read it, would know that it's imbued with Quranic verses. Uh, I'm just simply uh, selecting quotes and stories, but before and after many of these passages, um, the Quranic verses, um, which sort of put give some context or add further insight to some of these quotes and stories. And so I just want to read this short paragraph, which again was something that really struck me when I heard it um, for the first time. So this is in the mysteries of heaven and hell, we put ourselves in the fire. There is a mythical story of a seeker who once met a wandering mystic and asked him, old lover of God, where are you coming from? The mystic re replied, I just came back from hell. The man looked horrified at the reply, but nonetheless listened intently as the mystic continued. I needed some fire and I thought hell will be the best place to get some. But when I got to the gates and asked the angel in charge to, to spare me some flames, he said, there is no fire here. I confusingly asked him, but isn't hell supposed to be the storehouse of fire and flames? The angel replied, hell doesn't have fire of its own. Each person who comes here comes with their own fire. And then there's another, a few sentences down. Heaven is not just an earthly summit or destination we reach for. Heaven is a place where we are in full witness of God. It is a reality made for the people who submit their will to be unfolded in the will of God. That's just amazing. So often... I mean, just to lay some context to my question, I too grew up Muslim, and that narrative serves me to some extent. But then 
when I began questioning things and growing up in a multicultural, multi-religious environment where people wore everything from atheist, agnostic, religious, etc. Naturally, I began wondering, like Ibrahim salam, what objective reality is and how is it that one can come to know it? Or are we human beings confined to our conditioning, be it religious, cultural conditioning, and truth is therefore subjective, and there's nothing outside that, and, and what a miserable life that would be. And one of the things I'm picking up as I speak to you is the complete utter dependence on an intelligence, on a reality that is both outside what we call the egoistic I, but mysteriously imbued within the human experience, so close that it's in fact veiled from us. So part of that narrative, just going back to what I was trying to say, the part of that narrative of growing up Muslim was that the purpose of life is to enter paradise in the hereafter, after we've been judged based on our good deeds. And, uh, and, and that was essentially what religious practice is about. It's about accumulating good points or sawab or rewards so that in the next life you enter a place or an environment called paradise. However, upon reading Rumi and Iqbal and Ibn Arabi and the countless mystics in the Islamic tradition who speak of this divine love, they echo, they don't discard that narrative. It, they, they, they still hold it, but it's not the whole picture. There is a reality which is staring us right now, as you said, you know, wheresoever you turn, there is the face of God. And so I think this paragraph that I just read brings up this really important point that I wanted to raise, and it's actually the basis of the Hikmah project. And that's that sometimes the emphasis on legalism is so overwhelming, so strong or, or so dominant in religious discourse that there isn't any room for metaphysics or spirituality or the vast majority of the Quranic verses which are not, not about legalism and so I concur with everything you've said in that you know you cross your T's and dot your I's and you completely have to follow the outer law but at the same time the, the narrative and the outer dimension isn't the complete picture could you say something more about that? Yeah, that's um, the piece about heaven and hell, I think, is is such a good um, just context to speak about this because I think that, you know, the Quran, it speaks to every single person where they're at. And so when you have a book that's very much um, uh, veiled, but also unveiled, through symbolism, it allows each person to meet the book where they're at. And so, you know, in terms of someone who's very much in a fight with the nafs or the ego, 
on, on a, um, that first level. Yes, of course, the place where you're, you are fighting desires and you're trying restraint. And then these descriptions of heaven and hell come and it says, you know, this is a realm where you will be satisfied. So this fight that you're having, know that it's temporary. And so that gives that person that gives us that extra push to keep going, to keep in restraint. Then Ramadan comes and teaches us true restraint and teaches us God consciousness. And we're, we're like the, in this kind of dense fight with the ego and we're, we're being encouraged by Allah. Like, don't, don't you worry. Like it will, you will be fine and you will have this. This is just a test and speaking to you at this level. And then for someone like Rabbah, but a mystic um, woman, <laughs> and then you have her and she's like, you know, the good things of heaven, give it to my friends. The good things of this life, give it to my, is it? The good things of this life, give it to my enemies. The good things of the hereafter, give it to my friends. I just want you and you're enough for me Allah. So now suddenly she's, reaching into a dimension below this sort of, I would say like these ocean waves on the surface, she's deeping, reaching below and saying, hey, like 30 feet below, calm waters. Like, I want you. I want you. The, the pleasure and the pain and beyond the duality of that, I want you. And I recognize that where you are is heaven, where you're not is hell, or you, where your perception of you is not present to the person is hell. I just want you. And everything else that comes around being with you, that's not even of my interest. So she's reaching beyond those things. And part of that is very confronting because it's saying, look, if you're only reaching for heaven, which is totally fine, by the way, but if you're reaching for heaven because of all the things you missed on earth, in a sense, isn't that you just longing for earth and all the things of this world, but in the eternal context? Which of course, Islamically is, is saying that's totally that's that's fine if that's the, the direction you're you're reaching for. Allah and then the mystics come and they say, oh, but there's so much more. Oh, there's so much more for you. And so for them, love is the thing they're reaching for. And you have so it's like amazing to look at the the um I've been spending the past five, six years collecting stories from the tradition. And it's the stories are so writ. There's just dozens of stories articulating that longing for the divine instead of the outward things. And, you know, for us on this path, I think we begin with this sort of Oh, struggles every day with the little things in life and and okay well okay heaven's gonna be around where there's ease I get everything I want my essential my ego is appeased and then you kind of walk the path and you're like huh it'd be interesting if if my husband came and gave me flowers and then said okay cook me dinner because I brought you these nice flowers huh that wouldn't feel very good I want to I wanna receive flowers or give flowers just for the sake of giving flowers. I don't want it to be transactional. 
that doesn't feel good. Even in human relationships, it doesn't feel good when someone says, here you go. And you're like, wow, thanks for thinking about me. And they're like, actually, I had a request. And then I'm like, oh, how, how can I interact with a law that doesn't look like that? That doesn't feel good. How can I bring something to the divine and say, I brought, you know, it's so small. It's like Rumi says, it's like bringing spices to the Orient. It's like bringing gold to the gold mine. I know you don't need this thing. I know that it already belongs to you. And here I'm, I'm, I'm bringing you this thing just because it's all I had. And I, I just, I just wanted to say, I'm grateful. I don't, I don't have this big request. You know, I have all these things I need. And of course we can ask Allah for the things that we need. But in what, what's our intention when we turn to him? How are we turning to him? And what are we longing for? Is it transactional? Consistent confrontation. Is it transactional? Because we know love in this world wouldn't work. If it was just transactional, it could only go so deep. We know that. We experience that. But at the same time, we turn around and we do that to Allah all the time. You always hear the voices of, uh, I say, we always say this, we all, but I've been, God, I'm, I'm trying to do good for you though. Why don't you make this happen? Or, Please heal this, but they're so good to you though. Like, it's like this, it's almost like an employee saying, you, you owe me a salary. Like I put work in. You know, like so it confronts that. So this space of heaven and hell, it's this ultimate confrontation, one on transaction. We begin that way. A lot of, you know, they say it's like the hadith will say, you know, you do this, there's trees planted in heaven for you. And so people say, Hope oh, today I got a thousand trees planted in heaven for me. Did you do it for the trees or the, the palace or the pearls or the gold or the silk or the beautiful people or did you see beyond that and see that like being with Allah is like everything you ever wanted erupted into this realm into this manifestation but can we see and so then mystics say come and look at this life look at how you could see be in heaven in every moment when you're with Allah because really heaven in the afterlife is in full witness of Allah so when you're in witnessing of him, when you're witnessing his continual witnessing of you, Ihsan, you're in a constant state of heaven because you're present in that beauty. And that's why the prophets, peace be upon them, no one can point to the prophetic traditions and the lives of the prophets, peace be upon them all, and say, what an, e what an easy life. That's what heaven would look like to me because it's absolutely difficult. And yet internally, Ibrahim being cast into the fire, ironically enough. And ironically enough, notice how the fire becomes like a, what for him? A garden <laughs> in the center of the fire, but it's a garden for him because he's with Allah. The reminder for us that no matter what fires we're in, what the trials of what fires we're in, it could be like heaven for us when what our attention are witnessing is on Allah's witnessing of us. The moment is entirely transformed through that witnessing. But when we use only our eyes, our outward eyes, and we say, this doesn't look like that. This looks like a desert. This looks like a middle of a forest fire. 
we miss it. Because why? Because the eyes depend on duality to see. It depends on past experience to understand. But when you're with Allah, the one, then, then that reality of heaven can embrace you in that witnessing. So that's why we're called to, and returning, just making a full circle, walking out into the world like a prayer, is being aware of that one witnessing. You're aware of that in every moment, with every step, that you're in the divine court. And so be aware how you act in the presence of the king. May Allah make it easy for us. Amin. On that note, Helva, I just want to thank you for your time today and inshallah hope the opportunity arises again to, to speak with you and, and inshallah do another podcast. Inshallah, thank you so much for your presence and the true sincerity that you carry. It's, um, it's inspiring and something that um, will be included in my gratitude for Allah in this day. And I'm grateful for the space that you create. And really, it feels like the love and intention and gentleness that you bring. And I'm, I'm just, I pray that those who come across that and cross paths with you are able to appreciate that and that there's a true community around you to foster that. And I'm praying for Allah to continue to use you as a vessel of generosity, kindness, compassion and gentleness shall I mean. mm-hmm.